I think they come to me out of desperation because they can't breathe anymore, because they're crying, because they hurt so bad, because they're hungry and they just can't take it anymore and they're desperate. I mean, these kids, when they come to me, they are in shambles, they're a wreck. From the sunny palms of Los Angeles, this is Bully Buster, the podcast where Rhonda Orr speaks with guests battling the bully culture. Listen to real stories and find real solutions using Rhonda's Triangle of Triumph, going from victim to survivor to leader. Rhonda is an award-winning executive trainer, columnist, and speaker. She's also served as the founder of two nonprofits addressing child abuse and bullying. Now, here's Rhonda. Welcome back, moms, and welcome new listeners. This is Episode 12 of Bully Buster. Today, I'm speaking with an honest-to-goodness legend. Dr. Lois Lee started Children of the Night over 40 years ago and has rescued over 10,000 child sex trafficking victims. Her groundbreaking work has led to countless awards, most notably the prestigious President's Volunteer Action Award, presented to her by President Ronald Reagan. Her work was portrayed in a 1985 movie of the week titled Children of the Night, in which she was played by Kathleen Quinlan. Richard Marks recorded a song, Children of the Night, in 1989, and the proceeds helped build a world-class 24-bed shelter home and school. I am really blessed to know her from working phone hotlines for child prostitutes as young as 11 years old in the 90s. My nonprofit, Stop Child Abuse Theatrical Organization and Productions, here in Los Angeles, raised funds and awareness for Children of the Night through producing a play. After four decades spent helping girls escape prostitution, Dr. Lee remains a maverick who, as you'll hear, does not hold back. I'm so passionate about the massive and extraordinarily profound work and compassion she puts into her efforts, work she started when no one else cared. Welcome, Dr. Lois Lee, and thank you for being on Bully Buster. Well, thank you. As the world's leading expert in rescuing child sex trafficking victims, what was the defining moment that inspired you to start Children of the Night? I was a PhD student at UCLA and majoring in sociology. And for my dissertation, I was required to do a quantitative analysis, look at numbers. And my professors wanted me to look at census data, and I refused. And I happened to meet Margot St. James, the head of Coyote, the prostitutes organization, when I was at a sociology conference. And she introduced me to some ACLU members who suggested I sue LAPD and use those police reports as my research. (laughs) I thought it was a great idea. I was 25 years old. I did it and worked with a lawyer who did the legal part met prostitutes in court. There had been 10 girls killed by the Hillside Strangler. I knew the first victim. I met her in another court case. It turned out that one of the girls is an 18-year-old heroin addict who called me one night and told me that she had sent out a girl to meet a guy. There was no location, and, and I tracked him down and called the police, and they wouldn't go help her because she was just a whore. She was a 17-year-old whore who uh, later was found as the Hillside Strangler victim number 11, Kimberly Martin. The reporters who had been covering, you know, my case, I called one of them that night and he went out to the location and next day I was pretty mad. So I did an interview and I said, if you're involved in sex trafficking, if you're involved in the prostitution business and you think you know who the Hillside Strangler is and you don't want to talk to the police, don't call them, call me. And my home phone became the hotline and myself and three members of the press 
took all the leads and I refused to speak to the cops. I helped them with some things, but a lot of stuff I didn't help them with. We began to search for him. I became a legend immediately in the underground among organized crime, sex club owners, pimps, massage parlor owners, prostitutes, madams, call girls, you name it. They all told me about kids that had just entered the business. And the people that had the organized businesses, the club owners and pornographers, wanted me to get kids out of the business because they were not on premises, but the people that worked for them would encourage kids to participate, get on stage and dance nude and stuff. And so I said, okay, these kids can come stay with me. And I was teaching college and working on my doctorates. And I took the kids to social workers and they would not put them in foster homes or provide services because they were whores and because they were criminals. Prostitution was against the law. So I took them to the juvenile court judges and they wouldn't help them because even though they had treatment programs for kids who had committed violent crimes, they said these kids were were not committing crimes against property, so they wouldn't spend taxpayers' money on helping them. They were only hurting themselves. So consequently, the kids ended up with nowhere to go. And over the next three years, 250 kids came to my house. I said, okay, I'll set up a program for you. And I really thought I could set up a program and a drop-in center. And in the process of doing that, I thought I could turn it over to the university. Well, nobody really wanted it. I was on a little documentary and people from President Reagan's administration saw that documentary and they called me, they gave me some money and people came from every walk of life to help me. Not everybody in that group liked me, but I was immediately demonstrating that ability to pull together a group of people who had nothing in common except for compassion for a group of kids who were forgotten. You are amazing because you changed the system to making the predators or Johns and pimps responsible for prostitution as they should be and sex trafficking. Well, that was not my goal. My goal was to see that customers were arrested and treated and put in prison like prostitutes were in order to change the law to remove prostitution from the criminal justice system. Because I don't believe prostitution should be illegal. I think it should be controlled by the health department, children's services, uh, city planning, and other venues. I don't think it's fair that a girl who comes from nothing, who's been exploited, who's been abused, who's doing the last-ditch effort for survival, which is selling her body, belongs in jail. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you have children coming in as young as 11 years old, correct? I don't no longer have a shelter. I closed the shelter in 217 because the laws changed that required an agency that had contact with children who were involved in sex trafficking to report those children to the human trafficking hotline, which is a front for the FBI. And the FBI would come out, grab the kids, interview them. If there's a pimp involved, they put them in jail and hold them until they testify against a pimp. If there's no pimp involved, they force them into foster care and terminate their parental rights. And over the years, over 10,000 kids who came to me, they were all referred to me by parents who were rejected by the social service system. Once the government came in and took jurisdiction, kids ran from foster care. And I spent time trying to get kids out of jail who don't want to testify against family members or loved ones or dangerous gang members who will kill their families. And so and the kids said, we're leaving, we can't stay. And I said, I'm going with you. I closed the residential program because then I could operate. I have over 500 kids across the country without them being able to come and take them from me and put them in jail. I'm so thankful for that because you you made such a powerful change with your celebrated 24-bed facility. I did. For 25 years, over 3,000 children lived there. Well, that's just remarkable. I remember talking about being on the phones. We were not allowed 
to track the people. In fact, I had a girl that I was talking to one night at your facility, and she was on the phone, often on the phone for about three hours, talking about being five months pregnant, and she was 15, and she was in a hotel room. And at that hotel room, her pimp was coming in and out and wasn't letting her go out, but she said she thought she could go out the window, but she was afraid. She was just terrified to do that. And it was frustrating to talk to her all those times, but still I knew it was for her best well-being because then she would trust your organization that you were not going to turn her into the police or social services or something of that nature. And what a remarkable change. That was in 1992. How have you seen the laws change? Is it better? Law enforcement now is basically taking custody of these kids. And they've terminated the parental rights. So if your child's caught sex trafficking, you're, you lose your parental rights. There's a presumption that you're a bad parent. That's not okay. And we knew, even in the 3,000 kids that came to our shelter home, that no matter what you did and that you helped them get jobs and go to college and everything, half of them went back home. That's their mommy and daddy. They didn't live there. They were more independent and they had resources, but they went back to their families. You can't just cut those ties. That was really unfair. And the FBI in New York had already told me that they were not going to send kids to me. This was a few years before. If I let them go on outings to go to the beach or if I let volunteers come in and talk to them, that they would have contact with no one and no coming and going. And I said, I don't run a prison. And they said, well, we're not going to send you any of your kids. And I said, fine, I don't run a prison. Well, you've already rescued over 10,000 American children from prostitution. We've helped almost a 1,000 since we closed the shelter. So we're moving much more quickly, and we've gone global because we have an online high school equivalency program through Zoom where we tutor kids for the high school equivalency, and we pay for the registration. We give them a lift ride to the test, and we pay for all their government ID, and we help them get that high school diploma and then vocational schools and colleges. And we know some of our kids are working in truck stops and doing their tutoring on their iPhone and then going out and turning tricks. But without education, a high school diploma, when they're sick and tired of being sick and tired, they're going nowhere. Right. And the more you can provide those services, keep them medically sound, keep them dentally sound, keep them crisis intervention, uh, education, and, and keep them together, the other parts of their life together, then you can do something with them. There's opportunities for them. Do you still have your outreach intervention program? No, because the gangs control the streets. I, I pulled down our outreach in the 90s. because We were wearing bulletproof vests in the 80s, and, and we would pull up on Hollywood Boulevard, and pe- there's dead bodies in the street because of a gang shooting. And we knew the gangs wouldn't shoot us, but all we needed was a stray bullet. And I said, this is, it's terrible. I mean, I'm sorry, but I'm a company. I'm a corporation now, and it would have closed us. That's all we would have needed. And I don't want anybody to work for me to die. Um, But we are able to move kids around by phone. And and I've developed resources and techniques for doing that. I've always been really good with that. But I'm even better now. How did you develop those skills, had those tools? Well, when girls would call me when I was first met them, they, they would call me in situations that were really dangerous. And the pimp was coming or going or they went to get a gun. Or I would say, what can I do? What can I do? And I respected them for what what they've learned on the streets. I had to have confidence in them and let them lead me of what it is I could do. And so they would say, I can't leave now, but let him come back one more time. He's going to hit me one more time. It's okay, but let him come back one more time. Then he'll leave for another 20 minutes and then I can run. And then I would figure out where they were going to run to. And I'd, you know, either go out and pick them up or have someone else pick them up or 
have them go to a hospital room or have them go to a public place that was lit. It was all trial and error through me personally handling calls. Didn't take very long before I developed a protocol, but it started in 1979 with kids living with me. And I started working with adults in 1975 and 1979 kids living with me. And and again, probably the adults taught me more than the kids because by the time I was dealing with kids, it was a piece of cake for me. Kids would tell me things and I could finish their sentence for them because it's all pretty much the same. If, If you're really rooted in who they are, you accept them for who they are and you don't try and, you know, impose middle class values on them. Well, I love that. And what type of backgrounds do they normally come from? Or is there a socioeconomic factor linked to sex trafficking? The only factor that's common with almost all of them is the loss of sexual dignity. Many of them were uh, raped, gang raped, molested, sold by their parents for drugs, family members incest. That was always, it's always a common thread. And no matter what socioeconomic group they come from. And what happens is that they reject their identity and their culture through that process. And then they align themselves with other people who don't treat them that way. In fact, a, a pimp's common line would be, you don't have to lay in your bed anymore and watch your mom wretch for drugs or have sex with her drug dealers or wait for your grandpa to come in your room. I can teach you how to have sex and how you can control the sex and how you can make men pay you for it. You can have your hair done, you can have clothes, you can have your nails. And uh, we'll put together money, we'll build a business, we're going to buy a house, and we're going to have a baby. And that's what everybody pretty much wants. They want what everybody else wants. They just go for it with unconventional means. A different route. And those unconventional means are the only access they have to that American dream. Once you get that, you understand why they're reluctant to leave after they've given the guy five years of their lives standing on the corner. I started running away at age 12 because of sexual abuse that happened to me as a child from age three until age nine by my father and by his best friend. And I never wound up in that particular situation, but I know I easily could have. Because where do you go at age 11, 12, 13 years old when you can't get a job? Well, that's, I think, one of the reasons that Children of the Night launched so quickly was because there was no place to go. And I was there and I was all over the news and all over television and word spread very, very quickly. It was funny, someone had written to Dear Abby and asked her, you know, saying there's no programs, there's programs for AA and NA and all this other stuff, but nothing for prostitutes. And I wrote in and said, no, there are, there are programs for prostitutes and that's what I'm doing. And I was registering 160 phone calls from all over the United States a day. And she really supported me and gave me money. And then it became that it was such a despicable, ugly thing, prostitution, that any of the hotlines you would call in America, uh, someone mentioned prostitution, they go, oh, call Lois, you know, and then it, same thing among the cops, oh, call Lois, you know, or they some parents, they say, my kid's missing, call Lois, she'll know where your kid is. A safer and better answer. I could do something, and they knew that I would do something. It wasn't just a talker, it wasn't, you know, just, I mean, I've done the lecture circuit, but it wasn't just, you know, on the lecture circuit. Right now, we are such a, a sexualized culture. So what are some of the signs that parents who are willing to listen will look for? First of all, if a child's sexually abused, you suspect they're sexually abused, you have to treat that like you would treat a broken arm. I believe that you take them to the medical facility to have them checked. Sometimes I tell parents that and they're so mortified that I would even suggest such a thing because we're not as sexually advanced as you think. They're very oppressed sexually, even though they may be very liberal the idea of, of having a doctor touch them in that area is oh. what they say is, is offensive to them. 
but I think you have to treat it like a broken arm. And, and if someone commits a crime or injures a child, you treat them the same way that you would treat them if they hit your kid with a car. Right. That kind of intervention, and for a child to see very early on that they're not wrong and the parents are standing up for them at all costs, at all costs, that, that can be very, very helpful. Then watching kids have lapses in time where you can't account for where they are or what they're doing. Grades, obviously. And I've seen some things in the press that makes me sick about kids going to school, getting straight A's, and they're, turning, and they're performing acts of prostitution after school to, to buy designer clothes. They called it designer prostitution or something, designer sex. It's stupid. It's, it's just stupid. Non-existent, correct? Non-existent. Now, there was some of that going on in Japan, and it was discovered by ABC in Japan. And once ABC ran the story, then all it was going on in America, and all kids were doing it, and you couldn't tell if your child was a prostitute, she'd come home with expensive things, just nonsense. I can't imagine where people have gone with this in this era of time to come up with something like that. It's bad enough that sex trafficking even happens, and children are, are stolen. Have you ever had a story about that? I don't believe that either. You don't? Okay. Okay. Many of the kids are willing participants. They see it as a choice of a a lesser evil, entering prostitution, entering prostitution. Now, what happens is that when they get caught, they're told they're either going to go to jail for the rest of their lives or they're going to testify against this guy. Then you come up with them saying what the police want them to say, and you come up with all this mythology around sex trafficking. But no, there's no boogeyman. He's not going to reach into the bedroom of your child while loving mom and dad are in the living room watching TV take off with your kid. But I want to make it really clear that kids who are prostituting do not see themselves as sex trafficking victims. And very few of them will go to sex trafficking organizations because they say these kids are not like us. You know, they may have been molested by their dad or there may have been something that happened, but they weren't prostitutes. And kids who are prostituting, who call themselves prostitutes, are kids who have been left behind by the sex trafficking movement. They're not attractive kids. They don't have the hygiene, the speaking, the clothing, the, the language, the education. The people that listen to this podcast are experts and professionals in the field of psychology, sociology, those types of things, and a lot of moms or guardians that listen to this show looking for ways to find out if their child is involved with anything like that. So what would you say to them? The point is, if she's coming home with any kind of signs and you suspect she's been sexually abused, you need to get help now. And it's not through a sex trafficking organization. It's through a child abuse organization with trained medical, psychological, law enforcement people who work a specialized task force. Don't go to the sex trafficking people. That's not dealt with first on the front end. Then you're going to be dealing with the prostitution later on the end. And now you're talking about even more severe damages. But child not being there, not coming home when they're supposed to come home, drugs in your kid's room, inappropriate physical provocative behavior, dropping of grades, just basically not being accounted for in their time. No one, girls are not going to school and then going to homework study room, and then turning tricks and then coming home and sitting down and have dinner with parents like nothing happened. That's nonsense. So you know if your kid's there, your kid's not there. One of the unfortunate things in society is that parents have their own problems and they get so busy that they may not be paying particular attention to all the signs. Right, or they're doing drugs and those types of things. Anyway, I worked with an all-girls school that had 
of course, these were very elite children from people that are in the celebrity world and working with them. And that is what happened to a lot of them. And they started doing drugs and they started doing tricks when just still being in the household of their parents. But it it took them leaving the house and all of the luxuries that they had to really be taken seriously. And then they were put into a college prep school and a boarding school, and they went through therapy every single day. That was something that I thought was just amazing. I think it's akin to what you're doing. You are changing how we deal with these victims. Life with a pimp is better than life at home. Now, until you get that, you don't know what kind of child you're dealing with. And if your child thinks life with a pimp is better than your home, then you've got bigger problems you're not admitting to. I talk a lot about my triangle of triumph for my two nonprofits that dealt with bullying and child abuse. And on one side is the victim. And many, many kids don't even know they have a choice, that they can choose not to stay a victim. And once they go through that grieving process of having been a victim, and as you are talking about with professionals, with all the analysis that they need to have, going along with that, but they make the definitive choice to say, I'm not going to stay a victim. And then the next step is that they are a survivor. But, you know, and people used to pat me on the back and say, oh, you're such a survivor, Rhonda. And I didn't feel like I was doing anything but existing as a single mom with a baby and putting one foot in front of the other. I didn't feel like I was doing anything. And then I discovered that that was my journey. That's where I was able to define myself with things like my five C's, civility, courage, confidence, creativity, talent development, and communication skills. And it sounds like a lot of your um, kids, they're coming from backgrounds where they don't have that type of skill development. And that's what you are providing for them, correct? Let's not limit that to to ethnic children or poor children, because there are a lot of white middle-class kids and rich kids who don't have that either, who are raised by butlers and drivers and nurses and nannies. So it, it, it's, it's in every single level that you can imagine. And let's talk about bullying for a minute. Um, I recently worked on a case. It was not in America. The father came from Europe to meet with me, and his daughter did really well in school. She got bullied in middle school into doing Snapchat and taking pictures of herself and posting them and doing prostitution online, and then meeting men. And she was bullied into it, and the only way she could be accepted into the group, by other kids, not by a pimp. So then it moves on to where she needs access to a computer, so she uses the computer in the school library, because she's volunteering in the library. And then, of course, as it moves on, and she's spending more time going out and meeting men, the pimps get alert to her activity, and she has to choose with the pimp. Here's a girl who came from a really nice family who did have some emotional issues, but she didn't have to go through this. But that's right under the parent's nose. Now, that's that's the parent's story. (laughs) I've not had a lot of contact with her, but I would suspect that she's got a story too. Right. They realize that they have a choice because they chose to come to you. I think they come to me out of desperation because they can't breathe anymore, because they're crying, because they hurt so bad, because they're hungry and they just can't take it anymore and they're desperate. I mean, these kids, when they come to me, they are in shambles, they're a wreck. Well, their victimhood is severe. Their victimhood is severe. 
bodies are in bad shape. They're kicking drugs. They're bleeding. Right. You know, it's it's not. It, I, it's victimhood to me is a, again a very middle class notion. I'm talking about kids who who are clearly emotionally, physically bad, bad shape. It takes time, and I always tell them. For as long as you spin out there on the streets, it's going to take that same amount of time in order to get over it. A little girl that was in our shelter who wanted to be a pediatrician, and we had lunch, and um, it was time to go to school, and and teacher said to me, she's out there in the yard in a fetal position. And so she was crying, and so I went out there, and I said, what's going on? And she said, this is the anniversary when my grandfather raped me and, and left me in the cemetery. And I said, well, this isn't a cemetery, and your grandfather's not here, and if you want to be a pediatrician, you got to get up and go do your, your algebra. Let's go. And got her up, got her into the classroom, started to do her homework, and I went down, checked on her an hour later, and she's totally absorbed in her homework. I cannot make that pain go away. And I tell my kids all the time, I, there's no therapist, there's nobody who can make that okay. What I can do is create distance between that life and your new life. And through that, you'll find that the details of the memory will start to disappear. You won't remember if his shirt was gray or if it was red. You won't remember if he had shoes on. You won't remember what you were wearing. You won't remember the pain. And that's the only thing I can do. And through that and understanding that and having that tool is what many of them, what allows many of them to go on and to get married, to have kids or have partnerships or whatever it is that they end up doing. But to, to tell them that, you know, you have to identify with this group or this is what's happened to you. Our therapists miserably fail with these kids and admit, admittedly so. And there's so much misinformation about these kids and who they are. Uh, for instance, I'm on several dissertation committees where we had a group with Fuller Theological Seminaries Clinic and we sent our kids to them for them to do psychological and educational assessments for our kids who needed lifetime disability insurance, social security or special needs, access to special programs because of learning disabilities. And they would spend two full days of testing and take a couple months to write the reports. The reports were so thorough that you could walk them into Social Security and get benefits instantly. It was unheard of. And they came to me a few years ago and said, can we use the data to write some dissertations? And there's been like three dissertations, and I don't want to be an expert on the dissertations because I'm just a committee person. But I can tell you some of the things. They took the tests. The tests they gave the kids who were prostituting were the same tests that they gave kids who had been sexually abused, not prostituted, but sexually abused. They found major differences. There was far less depression among prostituted youth. Prostituted youth were able to organize and do multitasking much better than the other kids. They had goals. They just didn't have skills or the support system in order to achieve those goals. They tested a little higher academically. It's pretty amazing to look at the data. So it, it's not like without having that kind of informed evaluation and that informed information, it's not really fair to children who've been prostituted for do-gooders, laymen to go around and, and presuppose all of these definitions and these treatment plans on them. Kids find it offensive and so do I. Are you saying that therapy doesn't work? Don't you work with therapists? Yeah, we do work with therapists. We find it not being very effective. And one of the reasons is, is that a pimp controls her entire social world. She only knows four people. Other girls who she cannot confide in because they'll tell on her and then use that to get in a better position with the pimp. Police officers who will take away their freedom. 
other pimps who, if they're seen looking at them, then they'll be punished by their pimp or they'll be charged by the new pimp because you can't look at a pimp unless you pay him. And tricks. Customers, and many customers like them to talk about sex. A lot more talking goes on in prostitution than most people believe. I'm not saying they don't have sex because they certainly do. And when they sit in the situation with the therapist, they feel that that person is a trick. And they feel, and that this wall goes up. And they oftentimes, and Shelter would laugh about the stories that they would tell the therapist to see if they could get a rise out of the therapist. It's very, very hard to break through. Where I learned about the lives of the children who were involved in prostitution was by sitting in the emergency room after they OD'd and I've gotten them to an emergency room and while I'm waiting while they pump their stomach to see if they're going to make it through the night. We're sitting in a social security office trying to get them benefits or a driver's license and them saying, let me tell you how I got involved in prostitution. Well, my initial reaction to that when I started was, no, no, I don't want to know. I didn't have anything bad that happened to me like that when I was a kid and growing up and I didn't want to hear those stories, but they insisted on telling me. And they told me because they knew I wasn't interested in a, in a curious kind of way like, like a customer. So they have those boundaries. And what they do when they see people, when they, they're coming out of prostitution, everybody's in one of those categories. So would you say that they are not bullied as much as the average kid? Oh, no, I think they're bullied plenty. And do they have a higher suicide rate? No, they have a less suicide rate than those children who are just sexually abused. I've dealt with families who've lost children, 10 through 13. That whole age range has suicides going sky high. Because that because of bullying? Yes, because of bullying. I mean, it's they're finally saying, just like what you are as a pioneer, you are finally saying, this is the real story. This is the real truth. This is what the public needs to know. And I look forward to some of these changes because you've already made such astronomical changes in our system. What I would think would help them the most is a collection of the stories of other people who are very, very successful who were bullied. And I remember reading not too long ago a story about Ed Sheeran's childhood and how he was terribly bullied. And look at him now. And there's lots of people like that. And I can't think of others that come to, to mind. But I was so moved by his story. And there are a lot of people like that and a collection of those stories because they do talk about it. It's just I don't think there's any uh, collection anywhere that I think would really help these kids. Well, I was a, a columnist for Dear Rhonda and Dr. Sherry, Sherry L. McDonald, who is a therapist in Westlake Village. And the stories that we had coming in, I'm actually compiling a lot of those stories. But to see it from the eyes of a prostitute... Uh, to see what happens in their situations and why they're stronger. I was bullied. We moved a lot. I came from an upper-middle-class upbringing, but we moved a lot, and still I was bullied, but I never said anything to my family because I wanted them to think that I was very confident. And now when I'm dealing with parents that are dealing with kids that have committed suicide because they just can't take it anymore, they also run away. A lot of those kids run away. As far as bullying is concerned, what would be your final message to moms and professionals that have daughters? I think that you have to throw away all of the liberal garbage stuff in terms of group therapy and that kind of stuff. I think you have to go into the school and you have to raise hell. You have to really raise hell. You have to identify names of who's doing it. You have to demand a change. You have to demand that their counseling people attend to it. I think that you can go to juvenile police officers. I think juvenile cops are, are 
really underestimated in terms of the, the kinds of activities and behaviors they can do, the community policing to come to the school and run sessions on bullying. It humiliates and it degrades and it, it takes the, the power and the status out of bullying uh, where the bullies become shamed by the behavior. And I would say to you that a child who's being bullied is a child who's being abused at home and being bullied at home. I absolutely agree with that. And I've gone into the juvenile detention schools and I teach my program there. It makes a huge difference because they know that they're dealing with somebody who understands what they've gone through. And that's the kind of power that I'm able to transfer, I think, in some small way. And the kind of power that you enable these kids that have come to you for 40 years, that is something that I think needs to be explored. Maybe stories from your staff, from you, would really help Americans to really understand the nature of sexual abuse, sex trafficking, the task force. I belong to a task force. And those type of outlets really need to hear the stories that come to you and why these kids have become so powerful and they don't commit suicides and why they're stronger, why they're more motivated to get out of their situations. We collected uh, almost 100 stories from our kids and the title was What I Would Tell the White House If They Asked Me. And they all talked about stuff that happened in their family as kids and how there was no one there to help them. When the police came and arrested the mother for dealing meth and took her to prison, they were just left there. Or in other cases, situations where they were taken to a foster home and they were split up from other kids. And just, I mean, really heartfelt stuff. Uh, and that, you know, at school that they didn't know how to learn, they were afraid because they didn't have the same clothes as other kids. I mean, just really simple things to fix if someone cared. I can't thank you enough for being on our show today because you've just opened eyes, uh, including mine, and all the learning that we can receive from you that will make a difference in the lives of children. I applaud what you've been doing, and I'm very happy that I've known you and I've seen your system and have the opportunity to speak with you today because I think you'll make a difference in the lives of the listeners today. They'll look a little deeper, maybe grow a little broader. So thank you very much, Dr. Lois Lee. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Such a great honor to have Dr. Lois Lee on Bully Buster. I'm simply stunned by the amount of good information we have learned from the highly acclaimed Dr. Lee. Her Children of the Night organization is just mind-blowingly effective. Here are just a few takeaways I have from the woman who saves the lives of children from prostitution and sex trafficking. Number one, these children are not whores as they have been called. They become convinced they can't make it through life any other way. They are victims who suffer from terrible damage. Let's change the mindset and volunteer to help. Give them back their sexual dignity. These are victims. Number two, after a lot of research from Dr. Lee's data, she learned that many child prostitutes differ from kids who are sexually abused and don't go into prostitution. Kids involved in sex trafficking come from every socioeconomic range. Don't stereotype them. And number three, education is what pulls these kids out of prostitution. Dr. Lois Lee has an exceptional academic program within Children of the Night. Volunteer 
donate, and help her give lives back to our children? Thank you for listening to Bully Buster today. Dr. Lois Lee has devoted a significant portion of her life to saving these children's lives and changing perceptions about them. Please visit our website for a full bio of Dr. Lee and other links that are crucial to you. That's at bullybuster.us slash Lois, L-O-I-S. While you're there, download our Triangle Triumph PDF and find out how you can bring civility to your life and the lives of others. I'm Rhonda Orr. Until next week, let's build civility for a new generation. Go to Rhonda's website, bullybuster.us, to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. That's also where you'll find information about having Rhonda speak at your event or school. It's all at bullybuster.us.